0: Guys, have a seat. Managed to keep restrained, not get too carried away singing, so I've still got some voice left to speak this morning, so uh, that's good news. I usually forget and then end up croaking, but here we go. You know, it was quite appropriate, we s- started singing, it's really appropriate we sang Amazing Grace just before there. Of course, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, um, was himself a slave trader, and he saw, amongst other things, the slave trading was evil. And uh, a lot of other things he'd done evil in his life. And he re- turned his life around and repented and came to God. And amazing grace. And uh, something like 16, we sang four verses. It's about, the original was about 16 verses long. And it just pours out what God means to him in his redemption. So anyway, that aside, sorry, I got sidetracked right at the start. That's not always good, is it? <laughs> We're continuing our study of Titus this week, and, and, and we're in the second chapter, and it's verses 9 and 10, just two verses. There's so much packed into Titus, we're doing it in little bitty bits, and two verses again this morning. And we're looking at this question of what you should do when you're, you're trapped in unjust circumstances, really, if we phrase it, looking at it with modern eyes. And Paul's particularly in this, these two verses speaking about slavery. And I normally like to start a message with a joke or a, a video or something light-hearted, but I can't really think of one for slavery. I managed it with death, but I couldn't do it this time. But as we've found out over the last few weeks, Paul has a lot of really challenging things to say in this letter, whether it's to younger people or to older people. And I'm not saying who's in which category, but you know, to men or to women, each group has its specific challenges, and maybe some of them. Or of our own making, maybe. Um, Don't get drunk. Well, no one really forces you to get drunk, do they? Don't gossip. Well, again, it's not like someone pins you to the wall and says, come on, tell me, spill the beans on your friends. Don't do that very often, do they? But maybe there's a bit of reaping and sowing going on in some of that. Maybe if we stop sowing bad behavior, we'll reap some better reward. Bit of quid pro quo, if you like. But what if the problems in your life are not in any way linked your own actions? What if we're afflicted by problems that are not really our fault? How do we behave then? What if in fact we're not we're so not in control that we're totally subject to someone else's will, some external force on our life, someone who may or may not may not be a Christian, something someone who may really not care about us at all. God allows us to be in those circumstances. Today, we're gonna see in the ancient world that the situation was exemplified by slavery. More more than half people in the Roman Empire were slaves. The agricultural workers were slaves, all of them, the miners, the the, the waiters, the bathing attendants, pretty much anyone who was laboring or serving or someone was probably a slave. And since the gospel spread mostly amongst the poor people, the lower classes, there was a greater percentage of people in the church who were enslaved, who were owned by somebody else. I think the slides have got slightly the wrong order there, Balu. I think that's the, the next one further on. That's, a, that's the one. Great, thanks. Since the gospel, yeah, they're, they're owned by someone else. That The majority of the church population that Paul was writing this letter to would have been slaves. The majority. It was normal. It was usual. Most of the churches, perhaps, that he spoke to, particularly in Crete, most of the people in the church were slaves. So when Paul comes to this part of his letter to Titus, he's writing to people who make up most of the church and will totally identify with this situation. And then here comes the history lesson. Apologies for this, not really. I love history. but Context is everything. The events of the summer and the heightened consciousness over slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries that's come about following the BLM protests. Slavery has come to the fore in the national debate that in a way that perhaps hasn't been and perhaps should have been for a very long time. We'll touch on some of that later on, but right now we're looking at the nature of slavery in the Roman period, when Paul was writing to Titus, and it's some similarities, but some differences with slavery as it was practiced in more recent times. So a lot of the times people became slaves in the Roman Empire for two reasons. Firstly, Their country was conquered and they came as spoils of war. They were taken from their homes, taken from their people, taken from their families, and they were brought back and sold as slaves as the rewards that the conquering nation had earned, they felt, by defeating this other nation or this other people group. Some of it was sort of compensation maybe for the lives that had been lost and the money that had been spent and the time taken. It was just plunder and it was seen as just what happened. A way for violent people to earn bit of money at the expense of weaker ones. Romans did it, but so did pretty much every ancient people group across the world. And also, But then there was another case. People also became slaves because of bankruptcy. They'd fallen on hard times, couldn't pay their debts. And so I- in the absence of a welfare state, they either sold one of their children or they sold themselves into slavery. And that was just a fact of life. It's what happened if you hit hard times. It was a last desperate act to keep body and sold together. And life as a Roman slave was no joke. You really were totally at the mercy of your master. There was no law that protected your life in any way. The paterfamilia, the head of the household, had the power of life and death over everyone in his household, not just the slaves, but his children and his wife and everybody. A wise master would protect their investment, but once a slave was considered of no use, for whatever reason, maybe they got ill, maybe they just got old, things could get very ugly very quickly and you had no defence. Some evidence of this was found earlier this year in an excavation in Rutland, not that far away just across the the other side of the Pennines. They found a skeleton of a young man, maybe around 30 years old, sometime in the 4th century AD towards the end of Roman occupation in Britain. And his skeleton showed the evidence that his life had been to quote the report, filled with excessive physical activity. And he'd been buried with no care at all. He'd just been rolled into a ditch and left there. And the proof that he was a slave was that he had manacles around his ankles. What's really bad is that Paul is writing to slaves on Crete. And you know what that means? It means your master's a Cretan. And that's bad. It's really bad because these people are pretty lousy. As Paul says, they're liars, they're evil beasts. They're lazy. Now, it's calling a whole people group words like that doesn't come well in our 21st century sensibilities. But Paul knew what he was talking about, and he was talking about the culture. So when Paul's writing to these people, he's writing to them about a very difficult situation, particularly if their master was unsaved, as probably most of them were. But it was also true of saved masters. And you look and you think, without background, Think what Paul is asking these people to do. So with that in mind, let's just read today's passage. Titus 2, verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way, they'll make the teaching about God our saviour attractive. Let's pray now, because this passage is particularly hard to swallow. And we, and I particularly, need God's grace in teaching about it this morning. Let's pray. Father, we've read your word, Lord. we It's about a situation that seems a million miles away from thousands of years away from ours, but... Yet, Father, you've put it in your word for a time such as this. We know, Lord, that everything that's written in the scriptures is is, is for our benefit. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go through the passage, you'll show us how it fits into our world and even into our individual lives as we live as Christians in an unjust world. Because we ask this in Jesus' name. So let's think about the injustice of slavery there. It's terrible. Nobody wants to be a slave. And it raised a couple of key questions. So let's talk about that, those, the first question. First one is, why don't we just end slavery? Why do you have to have slavery anyway? Why not just end it in this fourth, first century? Well, let's, this is where the history comes in. When slavery began in modern times in the Western world, it was in the form of indentured service. That's what it was called. You're doing serving your indentures. Nothing to do with teeth, it's to do with servants. Someone would we'll pay your passage to go over to the colonies and you'd owe them your labour for maybe several years, maybe seven years or so, pay off your passage and everything you made, all the profit beyond what it took for you to survive, that ended up in the hands of the person that had paid for your passage. And that was a real difficulty. Just trying to do enough to survive in this strange land that you've been taken to. And then it shifted to racial slavery in the late end of the 17th century as the birth rate declined in Europe and prosperity increased in Europe and there weren't so many people seeking to go off to the colonies to earn a living. So they had to look for somewhere else to do the work. And African people began to be purchased from the pre-existing slave markets that already existed in Africa and transported across the globe because there was a ready supply and money talked. And just as the supply of labour in Europe was drying up, this market became available. But these weren't indented servants anymore. They were just treated as less human than white people and were largely not given any any opportunity to earn their freedom at all. And that's mostly the kind of slavery we think about today. And it earned the people who exploited them a lot of money. And it's led to such a legacy of hurt and damage and hatred and anger and exploitation. There's not really anything you can say in defense of the slave trade. It's a stain and it's an abomination. So why not end slavery? Well we did, or we thought we did. William Wilberforce in the 18th century, he was a good Christian man of conscience and he was motivated by his faith and he led the charge in in England, in Britain to, from the end of the 18th century it took him 35 years, 38 years to campaign and eventually the Abolition of Slavery Act was enacted in 1833. The British Empire and its powerful navy took the lead in enforcing the abolition of slavery and the d- destruction of the slave trade by force. They acted as a global police force. The British Empire at the time was the largest in the world, the largest the world had ever seen and would ever see. Makes up 40 percent of the world's gross national product was earned by parts of the British Empire, something like 25 trillion pounds was the gross national product of the empire. And the British controlled up to 80% of all world trade in the 1800s. And also it has to be said that Britain at the time had no problem with invading your country if you're up to something they didn't like. Out of 195 countries in the world today, there are only 21 that have not been invaded by the British. So in 1811, Britain had already made slave trading a felony for British subjects and foreigners didn't matter if they had any authority over you, they still told you it was illegal and wherever found. Punishments would include lifetime imprisonment and hard labor. Under pressure from the the UK, the USA banned slavery north of the 36-degree line in the Mason-Dixon line in 1820 in the act to protect the commerce of the United States and punish the crime of piracy, as they called it. Slavery was called piracy at the time. In 1833, Britain banned slavery in Canada, in India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Ireland, and pretty much all overseas territories. They freed 700,000 slaves in the West Indies, 20,000 in Mauritius, 40,000 in South Africa. President Lincoln fought a civil war in America in 1865. He defeated the Confederacy, and again, we thought we'd ended slavery. And in case you're wondering, Lincoln's the statue having his nose rubbed on the left there. We've always got to get one holiday snap in somewhere the writing was on the wall for formal slavery. Over the next hundred years or so, every country gradually fell into line and banned slavery. Mauritania became the last country in the world to abolish slavery in 1981, with Mississippi and the USA becoming the last legislature in the world to ratify the abolition of slavery in 2013. And today, slavery is officially illegal everywhere in the world. But just because slavery was made illegal by name, Human nature and greed being what it is, slavery still continued in spirit in many ways. I mean, have you heard of this thing called the company shop? Factories employ people, but instead of paying them in real money, you'd get company credit, and that was only good at the company's own shop. So you could only spend it on stuff that they sold at the price they were prepared to to, to offer, and those prices were well inflated. So you could never save, you could never leave the job, you could never earn enough to actually get by and that went on right into the early part of the 20th century in this country. And I work for a charity called Durham Age Mineworkers' Workers Homes, a long name for a small charity. But we were set up in 1898 because miners were paid so, so poorly and their conditions were so bad that when they were too old or too injured to work anymore, which happened a lot, they were kicked out of the tied houses that came with a job and there was nowhere to go but the workhouse. And they'd end their day separated from their spouse, picking oakum until their fingers bled with no money and no hope. And a clergyman called Joseph Hopper thought this was an abomination. And he shamed mine owners and persuaded the miners to come together and provide free home for retired mine workers so they could have some dignity in their retirement. And so there'd be still that type of thing, where rich men got richer by exploiting the poor barely paying them enough to keep body and soul together. And it may surprise you to know that we still have slavery in the UK today. It's hidden away in many ways. A lot of times people are enslaved and they're lured here from another country and they're put into service industries. Generally you don't see them. They're behind the scenes working in hotels and factories and nail bars, car washes, cockle picking, whatever. And even the person that's hiring them may not know they're not getting paid. Really they get a paycheck, may even go to a bank account in their name but the person who's brought them over set up that bank account and only passes them on a pittance. And it's hidden, and it goes on. The organisation anti-slavery estimates there's some 40 million people trapped in modern slavery worldwide, more than there's ever been in the history of the world enslaved. One in four of them are children, over 70% are female, and in 2019, over 10,000 were identified in the UK. Human trafficking, forced labour, debt bondage, forced marriage prostitution, call it what you will, but it's still slavery. Human nature is still human nature, and sin is still sin. And God says of them, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. We've been privileged with our cap center to help at least one person who managed to escape from the situation and set them up in freedom, away from their tormentors and their captors, I won't give any specifics of their story from the platform to protect their identity. But have a word with Linda the next time you can. If the story doesn't bring tears to your eyes, then you must be made of granite. End slavery? I wish. So that's one question. Why don't we just make it illegal? Because we have, but it doesn't deal with a human heart. You can make it illegal, but you still have people who want to exploit vulnerable people, who want to get other people to work for them and take all the profit and all the reward. And it may be wrong, and society at large may condemn it, but it's still there nevertheless. And the slavery that Paul was talking about was common in the Roman Empire and was just part of life. And at its worst, it was about degradation and exploitation and humiliation, the worst thing one human being could do to another. So the second question is, well, if I'm a slave, should I remain a slave? So let's turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me show you something the Bible says, which you may not have run across, you may have, but I, it's not one that we often speak about. It says in verse 21, Are you a slave? Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Certainly the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You aborted a price; Do not become slaves of human beings. So remember, three quarters of the people he's talking to were possibly slaves in the church. Are you a slave? Well, yeah. A lot of people would say, yeah, I am. Were you a slave when you called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Ooh, and my notes have just run out, so I'm going to have to. Excuse me. Just bear with me a second. Sorry about this. So what do you say? You don't have to be a slave. You don't have to resign yourself to the situation. If you're subject to someone else's will, you're in bad circumstances, but you don't have to remain there. You're not stuck. You don't have to just put up with it. Even if you're a slave, there's a chance you could get free in the Roman Empire. There's a way a slave could make money by selling things that they'd grown or made in their free time, what little there was of it, that their master had granted them. And if you made enough money you're able to buy out your, your servitude and you could buy your freedom. And many people did, did that as they were able, but it would take a lot of time. Just, just as we were saw earlier, while slavery could easily be nasty and brutish and short, it could also sometimes be a source of some wealth for some folks. There's evidence that in certain times and places, it could happen quite a lot. Slavery wasn't necessarily a life sentence at the time. A couple of months after the discovery of the British slave's body I just put up on the screen before, another slave's body was found, this time in Pompeii in Italy. The grave of a certain Marcus Venerius Secundio was discovered. The inscription explained how he was a custodian of the Temple of Venus, and he died at the age of about 60. And he was clearly well-respected, as his tomb was a memorial, a monumental affair, huge. You can just see it on the right-hand side of the picture there. And it was located in a prime spot in the graveyard, something that would have cost a lot of money to buy. And you can compare this huge mausoleum to the guy in Rutland who was just flung into a ditch. Chalk and cheese. So while this was an interesting find, what made it unusual was this second time Secundio's name had been found in excavations in Pompeii. first was in some archives it was listed as a slave owned by the city. So over the 60 years of his life, he'd earned his freedom and become a very important citizen in the city. So verse 22 of that Corinthians passage says this, remember if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you're now free in the Lord. Because while you're still slave in, a bo- in body, you're free in the Lord. And if you're free when the Lord called you, you're now a slave of Christ. So what's Paul saying here? He's helping us understand the perspective that our current situation doesn't reflect who you really are in Christ. Your current situation doesn't necessarily reflect who you are in Christ. You may look at yourself in the mirror and see the person you know yourself to be, but you don't see who you're going to be because God's in the presence of working on you and changing you and transforming you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So don't get trapped into thinking that the way I am is the way God wants me to be. God's in the process of changing you. He's helping you become who he says you are. That's your real identity. Should I remain a slave? No. But if it's not possible to get free, Paul has some good advice for us. In Titus chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. Let me think about slavery for a minute again. If you're a slave in Crete, on an island, by the way, an island, a little island in the Mediterranean, it's pretty far away from everywhere else. So you're not going to run away very far if you're on the island. You're not going to be able to get away from whoever's chasing you. So what would be your priorities? I thought of four, and I'm going to give you them in reverse order. So the first thing, my first initial priority would just be to survive the experience. Without survival, you're not going to progress very far. If you've you've become a slave, you're in a situation, the best thing, your immediate priority at this point is just to survive. So, ever felt like you're trapped in the situation? What you need to do is be able to survive. Just get to the next day, because if you don't survive the experience, nothing else will be possible in your life. You've got to live now. You've got to survive. That's number four. Four. (laughs) Count my fingers. Third priority: once you've 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 got surviving, you know what you need to do to get by. You want to thrive. Not only do you want to survive the experience, experience, you want to thrive in the experience. You want, you want to make some money because, the goal of number two, because of goal number two. But I want to make m- money, I want to I thrive. I want to not just survive the experience, I want to grow through it. I want to become who I'm supposed to be now that I've been saved. I want to do what God wants me to do. So I want to thrive in that situation. And if I thrive, if I'm able to do that, my life will get better. I'll go from the menial jobs to jobs that pay better. It'll give me more opportunity. I may be able to save enough money for my number two priority. So what's my number two? Well, freedom comes next. I want to be free. I don't want to be a slave. Paul said, if you get the chance, get free. You may not get the chance, but if you get the chance, get free. And if he says, if you don't get the chance, don't worry about it. But when God gives you the opportunity, get free. And for most slaves, we we're already up to their goal number one, that's it, that's where it ends. My number one priority is to get free, I want to go, I want to leave this behind, I want to make my something for myself, I want to get my life together, get control over my life, not be dragged around by someone else. But Paul says that's not the actual goal for a Christian, you don't stop there. That's not our ultimate priority. Remember that old Sunday school song, uh, that saying, joy, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself." our ultimate priority isn't our own comfort. It's Jesus. And because it's Jesus, he asks us to look out for others before we look after ourselves, even if they're treating us badly. He says our ultimate priority are the souls of the people around us. The souls of the people around us. Not our freedom. If you're a Christian and you're in a circumstance that you can't ex- escape from, whether it's the job, whether it's a home, whether it's out in the community, wherever it is, your priority is not your personal circumstances, but the souls of the people around you. Think of yourself again as this slave in Crete. You've got a Cretan master and you live in a Cretan household. So what's that like? Well, maybe you've got a master and his wife, you've got his children, you've got their spouses, you've got the grandchildren perhaps living there, Probably got other slaves around about you, and it's a big household. Probably a lot of other slaves. Probably forty people, maybe, in the one household. People are working. Maybe they've apprenticed themselves to this Cretan master to learn his skill and trade. And so you've got free people of Crete who are apprentices, and they're working as well. And pretty soon you wind up with this huge household of people. Well, why are you there in the middle of it? Well, because they captured me, and this is where I was sold to. Wait a minute, is that why you were there? Or is, are you there because God has put the souls of these people, this household, in your care? Well, if you're a Christian, it's a fact. The souls of others are in your care. And I want you to think of your network of people. Think of the people that you work with. Anyone got neighbours? Anyone got family? Think about the people that you know. You're there to bless the souls of these people. Some of them are unsaved. Many of them may be unsaved. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyone got any hard-headed friends? I know I have a few. Just don't want to listen to the gospel at all. People are not going to bow to the will of God. They won't talk about religion. They don't talk about any of that. None of that nonsense. They don't want to hear it. Have you got people like that in your life? You're there. So God can use you to soften their heart. Think about this person who's been captured and they're a slave on Crete and God's given them the household of maybe 40 people or so to interact with every day. God says you're there to minister to them. You're there to help those people. He says then they will make the teaching about God our saviour attractive in every way. He says make the teaching about God our saviour attractive in every way. And if they follow these five instructions that Paul's given them he says you'll make the gospel attractive. These hard-hearted people are going to start to think, I want to learn from that guy. There's something about the gospel that it's done something in his life, even in the worst circumstance possible, that I would like God to do in my life. You make it attractive. You make it appealing to listen to the gospel because of how you witness. So what are these five instructions Paul has then? first thing I want you to know about these is he's, he's, he's not given commands. None of this is stated in the language of command. He's not telling slaves, here's what I command you to do. He's saying, I'm giving you some advice. Some things that will help you in the situation you're in, given these priorities. So verse 9, first of all, you need to obey. That's a tough, tough thing to do. Your master may want you up at daybreak, back-breaking work. And you say, I want to sleep, I want to lie in, I need some rest. I c- no, please, no, up, out to work, no, mar- no arguing. Answering back won't go over in a sli- slavery situation. Suspicion it won't even go, go down well in a work situation these days. You don't show, if you have a job that starts at nine, and you're not there at nine, you may end up not having a job very long. Bear your master in what he gives you to do. Submit him, submit to him, submit to him. You're going to have to say, I'm going to obey his will over my will. So that's the first thing we're going to have to learn if you want to survive in this terrible situation. And if God saved you into that situation, then God knows about it, doesn't he? And he called you into that sit- situation to minister to you. So the first thing you've got to do, you've got to learn to obey that master, even though you don't want to. So, secondly, second thing then is please. The second thing. You don't just got to obey your master, you've got to please him. Do your best to please him. I don't have to do what this guy wants me to do, but I've got to do it willingly and I've got to do it well. And the way he wants to make, wants me to do it, as dumb as that may seem. You know where there's a right way and there's a wrong way and there's his way. And the Cretan's going to want you to do it his way. Your goal is to please these people. Your goal is to be well-pleasing, as some, ple- some versions translated. That's literally the word not just pleasing, well-pleasing, to work and go uh, do a good job for them, go to the extra mile, that's your goal, take it beyond begrudgingly carrying out your task and do whatever causes the master to be pleased with you. He's not saying the situation is right, but he's saying God has a plan to redeem his fallen world and there is a purpose, there is a hope, even in the direst of circumstances. Your endurance is your sacrifice of love to the one who saved you. Character is far more important to God than our comfort. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And then he says, they must not talk back. Don't argue. Resist the urge to argue. Literally the word is speak against. Don't run your mouth. Don't you hate it when you you give someone instructions and you know exactly what needs to be done and they argue about it? It winds me up, something rotten, I know that. It's not what I want to do, that's not it. And the word also argue, it also, that's translated argue, it has an implication of once they're gone, don't complain about them the rest of the day to everybody else behind their back. Don't speak against your master and say, you know, Cretans. they're not that smart. Whatever comes out of your mouth goes into someone else's ears. And even if you're just grumbling to yourself, it's someone else is going to hear it. And if you, try it, you say it to someone else, they're going to repeat it, and pretty soon they're going to try and find out who it is that said this about me. Pretty soon it's going to make it all through the household, who's the grumbler, who's the complainer, this Christian slave who supposedly got saved, but, and he supposedly follows God, but he's such a whiner, such a complainer. He says, don't talk. And don't steal. I know you're a slave and you're not getting paid what you're worth. You're getting maybe your food and a place to live, somewhere to keep the rain off maybe, but that's pretty much about it. And unless you develop a skill you can sell, you're not going to get much much more than that. So there's a real temptation and a real... It's totally understandable to think, I'm going to take a little bit of what he has for me. I've earned it. The word again translated as stealing could be pilfer perhaps more literally translated as pilfer. There's an extra cookie. Who deserves it more than me? So I'm going to swipe that cookie, and after all, they owe me. They owe me far more than that. They've got so many, they're never going to miss it. So you begin to take a little bit. And in sneaky ways and in subtle ways, you get money for yourself. And he said, don't steal. Don't pilfer. It never works out. It's going to work against you. And saving to earn your freedom isn't your top priority. The ends don't justify the means. Save for freedom, but do it honestly. When I think of a slave, I think of Joseph. Joseph was taken by his brothers and was sold as a slave, and he wound up in the house of Potiphar, as we know from the story in Genesis. And he followed the instructions that we've just outlined, and he did it so well that he became the master of his household, right under his own master. Everything was put in his care. Potiphar didn't have to worry about a thing with his slave in charge, and he saw that God blessed him because Joseph was trustworthy and he got to the very top of his position. And then another unjust thing happened and he got falsely accused and he was thrown in jail. So what does he do in jail? He says, well, forget about it. I tried all that once. It didn't work and I'm even worse off now. No, he didn't say that. What did he do? He started following the instructions again. Pretty soon, he wound up in charge of the jail pretty much. He was head trustee and because he obeyed god and because it was god's plan for him joseph then wound up being second in authority in egypt because god had a plan do you believe god's got a plan for your life his word says he does for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future god has a good plan and he's going to use you for his glory He's going to cause you to be a blessing to the people around you. He's, going to cause you. he's going to use you to cause the gospel to expand. So Paul says you've got to be trustworthy. You must show yourself to be entirely trustworthy and good. And the word good that's used here, it goes together with trustworthy, and, and, and the word would perhaps together be literally translated philanthropic today. It was the word that was used to describe people were public benefactors. Someone gave money for a park or a monument or a li- public library or something. They were doing good for the people. They were a public benefactor for the people. And you know what he's saying to these slaves? Yeah, I know you're not getting paid what you're worth, but God's put you there to be a public benefactor to this household. The blessings of God will come to this household because I've put you here. And when they recognize that, When they see things have been blessed because this person has come to work for them, suddenly everything has changed. The dynamic has changed. They enhance the gospel because they recognize the hand of God is upon the servant of God. Paul gives these instructions, not just because they're practical, they're reasonable. He gives them because he's living these instructions out in his own life. He said you you need to recognize Your circumstances are unfair, as unjust as they are, as permanent as they seem, but you're not really working for this person who owns you. You're working for God. You're actually a slave of God. Right back in verse 1, chapter 1 of Titus, if you can remember that far back, he introduces himself as Paul, a slave of God. It's how he starts. It's where he begins. It's the Priority in his life. So we're to change our view. Change the way we think and recognise that no matter where God has put me, even if he's allowed me into the most unjust circumstances imaginable, to be in a difficult circumstances, a job you hate, a boss that's on your back all the time, I'm there because I'm a slave of God. And I'm here to do his will. Then I. 21st century human rights centred culture that's so countercultural. It stands out. It's not how the world works these days. Focusing on our responsibilities before we concentrate on our rights is plain weird these days. Marks you out as quite something. It's tough to say, God, thy will be done. It's really tough. There are many times when I've failed myself. It was tough in the Garden of Gethsemane, but Jesus struggled with it. Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. God says, I'm using you to bless this world. He said, Well, I'm just a slave. Yeah, we all are. We're all slaves of God. And wouldn't it be wonderful if that person, oppres- person oppressing you got saved and became a slave of God too? Wouldn't that change their life? And wouldn't that change their circumstance? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it cuts to the heart. We thank you for the challenge it brings. Lord, we thank you that we know that you do not ask us to do anything that you will not give us the power to do. So in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, whether they're easy circumstances or hard, we pray that we will learn to follow you. And we will emulate Christ as he followed you, even though in the Garden of Gethsemane, He knew how hard it would be. We pray that you will give us that power and help us stand out so that you can save the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.